I actually was getting to the point where I was going to stop being a photographer. The kind of work that I want to do is just stuff where it's it makes me my soul feel good rather than going. Oh, I'm not really comfortable with shooting a fourteen-year-old in a dress that only a fifty-year-old woman can afford to buy because it's twenty thousand dollars. It's just it's this bit's unrealistic, that bit's unrealistic, and um, you know I don't want to shoot a skincare campaign on a twelve-year-old girl that's anti-aging. Like, of course she's not eight; she's twelve. And I, I, it just I, I just think you know I've I've shot you know Christy Turnit like Jen Hall, like all these beautiful women, and with that fail they feel this enormous pressure that I think men. I think men are maybe just starting to feel with you know the gym culture and stuff, but women have had this for hundreds of years. And I'm a feminist, you know. I think women are amazing, and I'm just want to make them feel good about themselves instead of perpetuating this homogenized version of what they're supposed to be. Hi, I'm Dan Brophy, and welcome to Quit Your Day Job, a podcast for frustrated creatives. How do you turn what you love into what you do? Well, each episode, I'll talk to my favorite creatives to discuss the tools and tricks associated with turning your passion into a career. Here at Quit Your Day Job, we believe that the pursuit of what you love is just a process and one that is available to anyone. So what are you waiting for? Your journey to feeling more connected to who you are and what you do Starts now. Jez Smith is a photographer. He's created arresting images of world famous talent such as Kate Blanchett, Serena Williams, Miranda Kerr, and Megan Gale. And he's worked for publications like Vogue Italia, Harper's Bazaar UK, InStyle, Elle, GQ, and Wish Magazine, one of my personal favourites. When it comes to shooting high-end fashion photography in Australia, Jez Smith has a reputation for being one of the best in his field. Why then, after almost 20 years building that reputation, did he decide to move a field and relocate to London for a fresh start? This episode explores a theme that's come up a lot with my guests of late, and that's self-preservation and self-care, which is not just necessary for those who are looking to do what they love for a living. It's as important, if not more important, for those who are already working within the field of their passions, because their livelihood depends on their ability to create. This episode is all about stepping back and taking stock which is not a a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Over the course of your creative career, you may need to do this on multiple occasions. It was interesting for me to be reminded that no matter how successful you are, you still need to be responsible for your well-being. And this is a great conversation for anyone who's wrestling not only with how to do what you love for a living, but why. Please enjoy my chat with photographer Jez Smith. And before we get down to the conversation... Can I ask you, if you are a fan of this podcast, can you please do what you can to spread the love? You can screen capture it and post it on your Instagram stories, tagging me, Dan Brophy. Could you share it to Facebook? Could you text it to someone who may find it inspiring? 
let's do what we can to share information just like this. And now, please enjoy my chat with photographer Jez Smith. I like to start by saying to people, hey, when someone says, what do you do? Yeah. What do you tell them? So, well, I'm a photographer. I mean, I le- eat, live, breathe. I see pictures every day, everywhere. I don't really know. I mean, a lot of people say, well, what would you do if you weren't a photographer? And I honestly, I can't picture myself doing anything else. Because even now when I'm talking to you, I'm looking at the highlights on your cheek and looking I mean, I see pictures everywhere. Yeah. And I just, it's so ingrained in me that to, to see pictures that it's, it's, it's not even, it's not a choice. I knew when I was 12. And when did you first start acting on that impulse? Did you, did you have an expression through photography from 12? Well, no. So I grew up in a really sort of <laughs> shithole little town shall we say, in the middle of England. Um, and there wasn't, you know, a lot of sort of creative influence in my family. I mean, what, what part of town was that? Uh, I, I lived, uh, grew up in a little place called Dudley, which is sandwiched between Birmingham and Wolverhampton in England. So it's very industrial. Um, and at the time, it kind of, the industry had started to sort of die off. Um, so it was, you know, pretty much a ghost town, not, you know, a lot of unemployment. And my, my father was a painter and decorator, painted walls for 40 years, amazing work ethic. And my mum worked in a hospital as a receptionist. Um, so there wasn't a lot of, so there wasn't, you know, a big sort of creative, you know, my family didn't work in the arts or anything like that. Um, Although painting and decorating is in his <laughs> no, 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 not really. <laughs> I mean, people say, oh, you mean your father was an interior designer? No, he painted walls. Yeah, okay. You know, he well, was a tradie. I That's... wonder, like, is that what you do if you are someone who likes aesthetics and you have to find a trade that allows you to... Look, I think my dad it? had... I mean, my dad actually was quite a good drawer. I remember that. But I think, from, I mean, to, to be honest, I think my dad did what he did to pay for us to be able to eat. I don't think there was a lot of choice. You know, he didn't sort of grow up and go, well, I, I'll take a risk to be a creative. I, I think he just did a oh, trade. In our parents' generation, and my dad's uh, almost 70 now, he was selling bread on the streets of Dublin yeah. at six. Yeah. Sorry, no, selling newspapers to buy bread for the yeah, family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I feel like there's, there's generations before ours where like, do what you want, doing what you want to do for a yeah. living, forget about it. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Who do you think you are? Like, yeah. what is this? Well, also because my dad was one of seven kids, grew up in a two bedroom house, you know, it was get a trade or get out. So, you know, there, there wasn't even the option of, you know, I was the first person in my family to go to university. So, which, you know, my parents were very proud of. Mm. What but did you study? A graphic design degree. So that's kind of, so that's kind of what led me to photography was I, I remember being 12 and thinking, I want more than this, you know, and not 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 necessarily more as in sort of more money or or anything sort of materialistic, but just uh, you know, I knew there was a world that I wanted to see, and my mom actually was very sort of um, she was sort of very instrumental in that, and so she was kind of like you know we've chosen this life to live in the suburbs and have two kids, and but you can do whatever you want. Um, what is that when you're twelve? What are the hints of the life that lives that exists beyond your immediate? Well, I guess I just... I, see, this is the weird thing, because when I talk, talk to my brother about it, um, I mean, I think if there's any, such a thing as an old soul, I was... I just, I, I just knew. And it's really weird, because my brother's three years older than me, and he seemed very much like a new soul compared to me. And so we would have the... You know, we still talk about it now, and he'd be like, you just knew it. You just knew what you wanted at a really young age. And, and I, I did. 
and I don't know where that came from. I just knew that there was more and I guess, you know, I mean, if you're observant and you're looking around at the television and it's not hard to work out that there's more than the two streets that you play in when you're a kid. And some people, you know, my brother and I are very different. He's super provincial in his tastes. He has chosen to live two kilometers from where we grew up. He works two kilometers from where we grew up. The moment he decided to move out of the family home at 27, I was like, where are you going to live? In the city or, you know, in South Yarra or St Kilda? And he was like, no, I'm not Doncaster. Yeah, like, yeah, you know, Just yeah. keeping it really, yeah. really neat. Really I mean, I left, I left home when I was 16. My brother, I think, left home when he got married when he was 32 and lives in a house 15 minutes down the road from my parents. Love and him. I love him to death, but, you know, I, I, we're just very different lives. And, um, yeah, so I, I, I left home when I was 16 and then went back for a while and then left again to go to university when I was 18. And so what, was that a very, was that a, a London lifestyle that you were living when you did bail on home? Well, I was in Brighton. Mm -hmm. I went to Brighton University, which is on the south coast, so like 40 minutes away from London. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, study all week and then go and party in London. Actually, it was Brighton, because Brighton is a dance yeah. centre, so yeah. that would have been I, having a moment. Yeah, and I worked in a dance club all through university, and it was... My first, my first year of university was in 89, which was the second summer of love. Yeah. So everyone was taking ecstasy and, and, you know, it was all about house music. And I, I mean, this is what I was like. I've, I used to work three or four nights a week until 4 a.m. And I was at university every single day at 8 a.m. And I would work through till 10 p.m. every night and then go to work in the club. But this is the thing about being in your early 20s, which I don't think... I, enough people recognize is you have energy to burn so you may as well you have to fill your hours with activity because your idle hands will do the devil's work <laughs> especially if you have a lot of a lot of energy to give yeah. i did the same thing i studied full-time i worked the door of nightclubs i'd leave the door of a club sometimes five in the morning six in the morning go straight to a film shoot work all day some get two or three hours sleep and come back and do a disco door yeah. all over again yeah. but if i wasn't doing that I'd probably be robbing banks. Yeah. Like, I think it actually... <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd be doing that. But I did... For me, it was more a case of... I mean, I was pretty much exhausted my, all through my university, but I had absolute tunnel vision and drive about what I wanted to do. Great. And so, was that fashion? Was that... Because, I mean, just to give people an idea so they can get some scope of where this is leading, your world, as far as I've known you, has really been fashion. It has, but that's not where I'm at now. No, but I think we should get to where you've been before okay. we get to where you are. Okay. Yeah. And I know, and I, I think I first got introduced to your work through publications and, you know, even you shooting on Top Model. And, yeah, yeah. But tell me about when, what would your agent's spiel be when yeah. selling you? Like, you know, the, oh, oh, Jez, well, Jez has done. What, oh, what, what, have what, they, done? what do they sell you as having done? Well, I was on contract to Harper's Bazaar here when I was 24. I was the only photographer in Australia with a contract with a magazine at the time. The youngest photographer ever to be put on contract with the magazine. Um, I oh got off shot for Vogue, Italian Vogue. Um, I've pretty much shot, every, I used to shoot the Levi's campaigns with the whole of Southeast Asia, Japan, Australia, New Zealand. I did that for four years and they dropped the ad agency and just paid me as a creative. Uh, I mean, that's all the stuff that those kind of, you know, the agency system. Like. So, but so you're, I mean, the thing is, you know, you would, that would be old news to you, but I feel like all of that work, all those ideas are so exciting to people, not only because they're known, but because people have an emotional connection to them. I was speaking to someone who was the face of a Levi's campaign in the 80s just recently, and 
he talked to me about that summer that he was the face of this campaign. Yeah. Everyone knew who he was because yeah. it was such a big deal. Yeah. And so not only if you for him, but for even people. Who, and then weirdly enough, he married a woman who used to have his picture up on her wall <laughs> when, <laughs> and before yeah. she ever met him. Yeah. So, you know, these campaigns, I mean, I was even talking to someone about, you know, the way you feel about the Calvin Klein model that was on the poster oh, yeah. when you grew up is yeah, just yeah. in you yeah. and de- determines what you think is sexy and yeah. desirable for the rest of your life. Yeah. Although I don't think that happens. I was actually trying to have this conversation with a friend the other day. You know, do you remember CK1 launched? Yeah. And it was like the world went crazy about this unisex. And ev- I mean, it was like you had to have it. And I think that's the one thing that's happened with fast, fast fashion now is there's not that... There's not that sort of kudos or incubation period, yeah, where and, or, and like sort of that sense of real desirability. It's more about disposability Access- now. Yeah, accessibility maybe. It, it, well, yeah, I mean, and, and sometimes it's great that fashion has become more accessible, but it, it's also meant meant that it's lost its. In some ways, I think it's lost it. They, I mean, you know, when was the last time a perfume was launched that you remember the launch? Mm. Or any product for that, you know, unless it's an iPhone or whatever. But even that now is sort of, oh, it's another iPhone. And it's, it's with everything, isn't it? Like when an artist releases an album or when, you know, the, the idea of an anticipation period yeah. seems absurd. Yeah. Like, what do you mean I can't have it yeah. at the moment, no. the second <laughs> I want it? Yeah. What do you think it is about that, that, that we've, what have we got in exchange for anticipation and hype and the building of desirability? Well, I think it is accessibility. I mean, fashion used to be quite pride itself on being quite exclusive, you know, and and a lot of brands, particularly designer brands, you know, that you'd buy the sunblock, you'd buy the accessories or the wallet because you couldn't afford to buy the clothes. Mm. And that's how they most of them make their money from the accessories. Um, and then obviously with the advent of fast fashion, the idea that something could be on the catwalk and then two weeks later it's available in the store in a sort of knockoff. Is, is in, in principle, it's a, it's a great thing and it's great that people can have accessibility to that stuff, but it's also you know, created a huge amount of problems, sweatshops and a huge amount of waste and you know, that's a whole other story, a whole other podcast. So, and I think that's, that's the trade-off, you know? It's, it's the same with you know, Instagram and, and all of that stuff. Um, it used to, you know, I used to shoot clients used to want 10 shots in a day and we'd spend hours finessing a shot and I mean 10 shots was a, felt like a push a big day yeah. yeah and now they want 30 shots in a day because they've just got to get it on Instagram the next day and they don't really I mean you know it's just like get get the product shot I mean this is one thing I was sort of trying the, the difference that I feel now is I used to get paid as a fashion photographer I used to get paid to try and make images that no one had seen before the emphasis was on doing something new there's no emphasis on that anymore. The emphasis is, is on selling the product um, and how many likes that particular image gets. Um, so there's no, I mean, this is why I've kind of tried moving away from fashion is because I, I, I feel like I used to get paid to be creative. Now I feel like in fashion, I would get paid to shoot product. What do you think is, it's a, it, to me it's almost a contradiction. If you're, if you're pushing for likes, but you're not interested in presenting something new, what has fashion decided to do in order to get likes, if not to be inventive? Well, it's the lowest common denominator. <laughs> it really is. I mean, you only have to look at Instagram and, you know, if it, there's, if, <laughs> without being crude, if someone's getting their boobs out or if someone's doing a highly sexualized image, they've got a lot of followers. Mm. It's sex sells, and we all know that. And 
it's, I mean, you know, my, my agent is saying, well, you know, you've got to get more followers. And so if I do, you know, put a beautiful landscape or, or beautifully lit artistic shot on there, I'd get, you know, 80 likes. If I put a shot with my pecs out, I'd get 300. And it's that simple. And so it's like, well, really? Do you want me to get more followers? Because this is all it takes to get more followers. And I'm not actually interested in getting those kind of followers. I'd rather have less followers but people that are genuinely following me because they like my photography and they're into, or they're young photographers and they want to learn or they, you know, direct message me and ask me questions about what I do or how I do it. Give me 20 of those than have 20,000 that just want me to get my shirt off. What do you think it is about, I mean, what's on the other side of this? Because I, I feel like it is a very boring formula in order to be oh, popular yeah. in this space. Yeah. And I'm really hoping that there's a generation that's coming up, looking at what we're doing and thinking that it's dumb and dull. Oh, and it's what, already happening, I think. Yeah, what's the answer? I, I, I want the next, I want whoever's 10 now, to in a five years time, when they start to have some sway in the yeah. market, to be into the opposite. Well, my, I've got a 14 year old and she is just not interested in social media at all. She's just, oh, it's really silly. Brilliant. Yeah, and so it's already happening. I mean, you know, it, it, it is really silly. Like, it, it, it's ridiculous. You just, I mean, I look through, you know, people that I love, that are my friends, and I look through their feeds, and it's just like gym selfie after gym selfie. And, and I love them to death, and they're great people. And, you know, I understand we all need to be validated in some way. It's just, that's just humanity. We all want to be loved and desired. But it, it, it's ridiculous. And I, and I think that, that there'll be some sort of backlash. I mean, I think the thing is, the, the, the problem is that it's called social media, and it's no longer social. When I joined Instagram, it really was supposed to be about revealing, it's when I was doing the TV show, and so it was supposed to be showing people that watch the show, little sort of insights into my life and me hanging out with my friends and, you know, people Which, which show is this? When I was doing Australia's Next Top Model. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you, you specifically chose to take on Instagram as a way to give a behind-the-scenes view of the work you were doing? Well, we were... You know, we were encouraged to be on Twitter and, and, um, and, and those days when I'd woke up and I'd go, I've got nothing to actually say. I can't think of a, I can't, you know, construct a sentence that's worth posting. Um, whereas I can take a photograph because that's my, that's my thing. So I kind of joined Instagram as a way of sort of giving the people who watch the show and, and the, the fans of the show an insight into behind the scenes on shoots and all that kind of stuff. So it started off for me being very much a sort of work, but also social, social media. Um, and now I think it should just not be called social media because it's just a selling tool. Yeah. It's just another form of advertising and there's nothing social about it in most cases. Um, and people just want to get paid for posting stuff that they say that they like and that's, that's, there's nothing wrong with that, but there's nothing social in that. No, it's, it's become a very different medium and I've, been trying to get my head around how I wanted to embrace social media, yeah. as, as it's called. And I realized I was a little bit torn because I thought, well, until I can represent my process or my life accurately, then it doesn't feel right. I don't know how to play in that space. Yeah. And then I had to just make friends with the fact that it's a magazine yeah. and I'm, I'm sort of curating a story that is actually best at telling just one very fragmented part of my process yeah, and life. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. And if, you can, if you're okay with being super reductive and focusing on a very small part of your overall self. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or being prepared to put stuff on there that people don't like that much. I mean, you know, I've been accused of being too serious on there and because and, I'll, well, you know, I'll post on Facebook, I've had a shit day. 
but I refuse to pretend that every day I have is good because they're not and I don't that's not my that's not the, the experience that I want as and it, it is your God given right as a British person to be able to complain about yeah, existence do you know what I mean well it's not just that but like it's, it's really important because I think that there's this there's this facade on social media and I'd rather my you know I mean obviously for me Facebook is quite personal and it's just my friends and it's just people that, but Instagram is more of a work thing now um but you know, even on Instagram, I'll post comments or I'll post stuff, and I think it's really important for people to to know that you know it, my life isn't perfect. Like I don't want to present a, a sort of fake view where it's all just holidays with my friends on the beach, and you know I work really hard, and sometimes I'm curled up on the couch knackered and exhausted, and, and you know feeling like crap because I've got terrible jet lag like I, right now, and yes. you know I I just I think it's and and people sort of go oh it's just social media you shouldn't be so no, don't get so dark on it but the flip side of that is just to be completely bland mm. and which a lot of it is it's just bland and it's like no I have ups and downs in my life and, and I have light and shade and that's for me that's a f- f- fully led life like I don't want to live life like this I want to feel everything all the highs and all the lows really deeply you know I cry I laugh it's equally important to me so when you decided to shift up your focus from fashion photography to, and I mean, are you back in Australia now to, to shoot fashion? No, so I'm, well actually saying that, I, 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 have, I did just spend yesterday shooting fashion raw lingerie, but what I'm trying to do now is work, I still, you know, I'm a commercial photographer, so I, I don't have an issue with selling a product, um, but I try and work with brands that have some sort of social agenda. So uh, the first shoot that I actually flew back here for specifically was to shoot for Trilogy, which is a New Zealand skincare campaign, but they don't retouch any of the images. So it's so funny how that's a point of difference. <laughs> but it's a massive, like it, they're the only people in the skincare arena that are doing that. Right. The only company. And we shoot, you know, close-ups and they, we shoot, we shot a 30-year-old, 40-year-old and 50-year-old. So it's really is these you know it's it's the truth about skin what skin really looks like it's you know one of the ladies had a white white head on her chin and and that will be left on the picture and so it's um you know obviously they get they get a little bit of makeup put on and they get the head on it's not we don't drag them off the street it's still mm-hmm. everywhere in the studio shooting with you know it's my job to light them beautifully but at the end of the day the skin is as it really looked and it's a massively important i think it's a massively important thing that they're doing um to just be a little bit more truthful about that um do you think that that is a step in the direction of where we where we're going in general with advertising i'm thinking of even the way that christina aguilera has relaunched herself with a paper magazine shoot in which she's seemingly wearing no makeup i think she's she's sort of been very prepared for that. Yeah, I mean, look, there's mom, There's always been moments where, I mean, I think there's there's two things going on here. There's the fashion thing where there's always, I mean, fashion just goes in cycles, you know, and for every supermodel, there's the grungy model, and then there's the supermodel, and, you know. We're, we're it, sort of doing a late 90s revival it's just, in general, like, well, being it's, 20 years it's like what, you know, they've, got to, they've just got to keep selling magazines and selling clothes, so it's whatever the next thing can be, they make it. There's no real rhyme or reason to it. It's just what's different to what we did last week to make people buy the new jeans that they didn't have last week. I, I also feel like there's something about the thing that when you are an impressionable teenager, by the time you are 
in control, which is generally 20 years on after you've studied and come control up with the world enough. <laughs> well, so for example, you know, I don't I, feel like I, I'm in control. I, I, was, I was my most impressionable about 20 years ago when I was in my mid-teens, mid to yeah, late teens. Yeah. Now I'm in my mid-30s and I'm everything that I wanted to be able to buy as a trapped suburban yeah. teen, I'm now buying as a 35 year old because yeah. I'm like, in your face mom, I'm going to have the shoes that you didn't let me have yeah. or I'm going to have this, this thing that so I want to So real control is not needing to buy them. You're right, it's not actually control. But when, you know, when you're the one who's sort of uh, steering your ship I'm just giving you so. a hard I noticed that when I was my most impressionable was about 20 years ago, all these styles are now coming back into existence again yeah. to the point at which it makes sense that if I was a designer, I would be living my teen fantasy all over again and putting those ideas out. So it sort of makes sense that things do yeah. go in 20 year cycles. Well, yeah, but it's also just there's only like, you know, at the end of the day, a skirt's a skirt and a pair of trousers a pair of trousers. There's only, it's not reinventing the wheel. You move the pockets, you can change the buttons, you change the fabrics. There's only a certain number of styles that you can possibly create. Um, so of course they're going to reoccur. Mm-hmm. I mean that's that's the I mean that's the truth of fashion is that actually you only you know if it wasn't if people only bought one pair of jeans for their whole life mm. and they were made to last your whole life there'd be no fashion industry. Mm-hmm. The very nature of what I used to do was to encourage people to buy stuff they don't need. Mm. Like you don't need to buy a new shirt each season. Like the shirt that you bought last season is perfectly functional and still keeping you warm and the buttons are still on if it's a good quality shirt but that doesn't help the fashion industry make money so they're going to tell you that that oh that shirt's terrible now this is the new shirt you you have to have Mm. and so the whole thing is a facade but i think anyone that that doesn't mean that it's not fun and it can't be creative and that you know you can't express yourself through clothes but you know I, i mean i have this conversation with people all the time People say, yeah, but you know, the way you dress is an expression of your personality. And it's like, it is an expression of your personality, but it doesn't say any of the important stuff about you. So it may decide, it may say what kind of music you're into and what kind of tribe you belong to and what kind of street tribe you belong to. But it doesn't say whether you're a good person or not. Mm. It doesn't say whether you're kind or generous or got a good soul. And that's the stuff that's really important to know about a person. I don't care what music you listen to. I care that, that, you, that you're a good guy. Mm. And so fashion is some sort of self-expression, but it's just the stuff that you're expressing through fashion is not that important. When you existed in a space that was so, you doing a good job is really directly speaking to the, to the creation of aesthetics. And it means that you're in an industry that's surrounded by people who are dedicated to that. I mean, to love beautiful things and to be dedicated to the creation of it. Did you get, did you feel that there was dissatisfaction with existing in that space after having played in it for so long? I mean, look, I, I, I sort of fell into fashion photography. I mean, I think people get into fashion for different reasons and not all just because they love fashion. I mean, I was, I've always seen myself as a photographer first and foremost. I loved, the thing I loved about taking fashion pictures was I loved walking into a, sort of an empty studio and creating an environment. And, and, you know, I mean, I used to have fashion editors say to me all the time, you know, step back, 
because I'd be like zooming in on the model's face because for me it was all about the interaction with the model and and uh, and you know they wanted me to shoot the shoes and I'm like I don't know I don't care about the shoes look what's going on here you know and so for me like I, I always say people, like photographers get into fashion because even because they love the clothes and they're obsessed with the clothing or because they're obsessed with models and they want to shag them or because they love photography and they happen to and and for me it was always about lighting. Um, you know, I, you know, that's for me, photography is lighting and composition and there is nothing else to it for me. And if it's not that, then it's not photography as far as I'm concerned. And so, um, you know, for me, that was the, the thing that I loved about fashion was that constant challenge of always being sort of what can I shoot next that's different and how, do, how, how does my lighting and my style of lighting evolve to be different and new and and so it was you know that was a huge driving force for me and it was never about the clothes really and it wasn't and that's probably why you know I think I'm a terrible fashion photographer even though I've worked for all these magazines I was never really about the fashion. I love that idea that you could be so in demand as someone who was disregarding of the key part of the process. <laughs> it's kind of weird. I mean, look, you ask any, anyone that worked with me. It's funny, I, was, I actually had dinner last night with the, with the fashion editor that I used to work with a lot. And he used to be like, oh, you know, you always shoot so dark and moody. You're like, oh, yeah, there's a little bit of a shirt in there somewhere if you look really hard into the vision. I'm like, yeah, but the, they were so atmospheric. Totally. <laughs> you know, and that was, that was, you know, that was kind of like, that's the story of my working in the industry is that it was, it was always about... Um, yeah, it was always about making a picture that had some sort of... I just wanted to move people with the pictures, whether that was, you know, a sense of dark isolation or, you know, the fresh, a fresh, a fresh face girl running on the beach and just all of those feelings that you get from pictures. Like, for me, I used to say, if I can leave five pictures behind that, that have moved five people, then I'll be happy. When you were that, that kid in, in, um, in England growing up, who were the the first photographers that, that spoke to you? There were always the street photographers, so people like Diane Arbus, Robert Frank. I mean, Avedon obviously was a huge kind of... I mean, I saw... An, well, when I was 21, I was living in New York and I was working at Interview magazine. Really? So yeah. that, that... I mean, interviews, so iconic. What what era was that? Late... Early, early 90s? Early 90s, yeah. Who, who was it? Ingrid Shishi? The, yes. Okay. Yeah, Richard Pandisio was creative director. Wow. Um, I, I got the gig through a friend of mine, Tony Moxham, who was the art director then. Um, and I was just interning, just doing an unpaid internship. Um, but yeah, an amazing time. And, you know, Junior Vasquez was playing 12 hour sets at the Sand Factory. I was in a Madonna video. Which like, one? Secrets. The oh. First thing I've ever So it just, it was just, I was like 21, skinny as all hell, starving, broke. I used to sleep in the park sometimes because I had nowhere to stay. And working in this magazine that I was just, and I was just so excited to be involved in the industry. And then I started doing assisting work and the guy that I was working for, an amazing guy called John Darwin, I mean, I was really lucky. He was an artist and I think because he was the first photographer that I assisted, you know, we'd spend 12 hours over one 10 by 8 print in the dark room and just, he really taught me the poetry of a print and the rhythm of a print. And, uh, and I, I saw him recently in New York and, you know, I sort of sat there almost in tears just saying to him, you know, every... Every shoot, I hear things that he taught me still, just about, you know, he, he treated it as an art form, not just as a business. And it was really, really important, I think, to work with someone like that straight out of uni and, and to sort of not just go into, like, well, photography is the way I make money. Like, he really 
saw it as an art form, which was amazing. But yeah, I saw a, a, an Avedon exhibition at the Whitney. Um, it was just incredible. Just you know, the, the power of them just blew me away, and I was like, okay, I want to, I want to do something like that. You would have been coming up at a time when digital was overlapping with uh, to become the. Oh, the... No, I mean, I, for a long first probably ten. I'm pretty old, so first sort of ten years it was mostly film. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm old school, like I print black and white, develop black and white, print colour. You know, I sort of trained in all the traditional ways of photography. And for, but the, also because I had a graphic design degree and we learned very, very early stages Photoshop. Um, so when it did become digital, it wasn't that big a deal for me. I've never, like people say to me now, don't you miss film? And I'm like, I don't give a toss about film. I, it's just a way of, it's just the tool. So there's a thing in my head, there's a visual in my head, and whatever it takes for me to get that out, I'll use. So whether that's shot on my iPhone or shot on a Facebook 645DF, you know, whatever it is, 10 by 8, whatever it takes to get that out. And so for me, it was like, once I realized the sort of the way to make digital work, which was a little different to shooting film, you have to light differently. And, but once I'd sort of worked out those parameters, it was just like, okay, let's, Let's carry on. When you say you have an image in your mind that you then look to recreate, what fuels that bank of, of images? Oh God, I, I do it lots of different ways. I mean, just walking around the streets, like I, see, like I said, I see pictures everywhere. One of the nicest things that anyone has ever said to me, there's this lovely lady that goes to my gym in the mornings and she said to me one day, she said, you've made me see the world differently. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, I see the places that you photograph on the way to the gym at five o'clock in the morning. And she said, you know, I've never looked at them the way that you do. And she said, now I look at those, like those alleyways and those doorways differently because of you. She said, you've made me see the world differently and I really thank you for that. And I was like, that's the, the most beautiful compliment. Just for someone to see the beauty that I see. Because I do feel like I live in this sort of weird, it's probably, I mean, it's quite a sort of rarefied, sort of silly, um, overly romantic view of the world where literally every shaft of light is poetry. <laughs> and, you know, every, you know, I can see a pile of trash in an alleyway and just go, oh my God, because the way the sunlight's hitting the trash is so beautiful. And, but it's real, it's, it's really how I see the world, you know? And so I think, I, I, from running around the streets to also I watch a lot, a lot, watch a lot of film, and I quite often will freeze frame and do screenshots. So I watch a whole film, and there'll be one moment in the film which will inspire a whole fashion story, or used to inspire a whole fashion story, or will make me kind of go, ah, oh, the way the lights hitting that, that that's set something off in me. I want to shoot some portraits like that, or so it comes from everywhere, really. Let's talk about your. Um... Who are your contemporaries in terms of Australian fashion, or even even UK? I suppose you've always, you've always had a foot in the UK and, and US, but you know who else is in your? Who are your alumni in the, in, in the in the photography space? Gosh, I mean, it's really weird because I I just think everyone's better than me. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, it, it's it's. I mean, I guess the kind of people that I used to get put up against work-wise, here would be like people like George Anthony and Troy Coburn and Simon Upton and Simon Leckius, um, and Richard Bailey, um, rest in peace, poor guy. And, um, but you know, I just, 
Yeah, I mean, the one thing with me is, and also Muley Ballard and, and yeah, oh God, I mean, there's so many here. I think the thing is, for me, I'm, I never really saw myself in any kind of competition with anyone. Um, so, you know, I used to call George and say to him, oh, that shoot you just did in Vogue was so beautiful, blah, blah, blah. And he'd be like, you're the only one that does that. But I'm, I'm, not, like, I'm a fan of everybody else. Um, and, and, you know, pretty much people say, well, what, you know, what's your favourite picture? And I'm like, I'm, all my favourite pictures are pictures that other people shot. Mm. And my pictures I can always pull apart. I'm never happy. There's always, I think I've probably taken two pictures my whole career that I'm like, oh yeah, that's exactly as it should have been. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think I'd feel very egotistical to compare myself to other photographers because I think they're all better than me. Do you see the work, do you see your early influences in your work? Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, I I mean, someone like Nick Knight, for example, 100%. And and when I, I guess when I first, when I first came here, a lot of people compared my work to Mario Sorrenti. Um, also, Bill Henson. I used to get called the, the fashion version of Bill Henson. And I didn't actually know his work until I came to Australia. And I remember sort of being you know, offended that I was being compared to someone. And then I looked at his work and I was like, oh, no, okay, I, I'll handle that comparison because his pictures are freaking beautiful. Um, so, you know, it, it's kind of... Um, I, I think the, a lot of the people... Because a lot of the photographers that I loved weren't fashion photographers. Yeah. So... I never felt like I was sort of directly, you know, I never sort of wanted to be Stephen Mizell or, although he's a, uh, clearly a genius and people like uh, Craig McDean, Glenn Lutchford. So I used to be with um, my agency in London, just had myself and Sean Ellis. Um, Sean Ellis was, came up through the same sort of, at the same time as Glenn Lutchford and Craig McDean and those guys. Um, there's a real sort of, there's a whole group of them that all came out of Brighton, which where I went to university. They, they were all a few years ahead of me, but there's definitely like, like a kind of school. And, you know, I loved like, like Glenn Lunchford's pictures were always very atmospheric and very moody. And he used um, film um, DOPs to light his pictures. So they were more very filmic, um, which I love that idea. And, you know, I, I mean, anyone that kind of just didn't shoot, just shoot the product anyone that kind of created a look and that changed that and evolved, I was like, oh, you know, that's, that's, to me, that's fashion photography. Did you ever think of only existing in an art space? I did, but I, I guess because I went, did a graphic design degree, I sort of trained to work to a brief. And I like that. Like, I think I have done, I mean, I had my first solo exhibition at the Sydney Opera House a couple of years ago, which, uh, 2012, which was a pinch me moment. You know, I kind of thought if I ever have an exhibition, a solo exhibition, I'll be in a little laneway somewhere and hope a few people turn up and they erected 20 plinths outside the opera house. And I had, I spent two months shooting Sydney Dance Company in rehearsal and just, you know, no direction, no lighting. Couldn't even direct, like couldn't even ask them to do something again because they were literally rehearsing for a number and took it, they take it very seriously, obviously. So there would be days where I, wouldn't even get a single frame in focus and I was just there because they were moving so fast and but uh, that was a definite kind of like wow wildlife photography at its most exquisite <laughs> yeah well yeah and and you know and just for it to to actually be standing outside Sydney Opera House and seeing my pictures there and being like wow this is my first solo exhibition and it's at the Opera House that was a pretty big that was a you know 
for a little boy from the middle of England, that was a big moment. Um, what was I saying? I can't even remember what I was saying. Uh, Where was I going with that? <laughs> Where was I before? <laughs> this, is, this is when the jet lag kicks in. I got what's my excuse? <laughs> um, what? You just weren't listening. <laughs> That's all right. But in terms of um, you know gathering your inspiration and building that bank, you know you're saying you sometimes snapshot cinema. You know, have you what have you been really turned on by creatively recently? Old or new references? Okay, so because I've changed the kind of work that I want to do now, because I'm not, I haven't shoot for, I mean, look, I, the truth is I probably haven't brought a fashion magazine for 10 years. Why is that? Because I haven't really either. Is it because I'm just getting my stimuli elsewhere? Because <laughs> fashion's not exciting anymore. Okay, I, I thought it was just me, because once upon a time, you could either, I, I remember even saying, if I had 200 more expendable dollars in my week, I would spend it all on fashion oh, magazines. we all used to do that. And I yeah. got to a point where I now have more money to spend, because yeah. I'm certainly not spending on going out in Sydney, and so I'm now thinking, what happened to that? I don't really want it anymore. Well, because I think, did they change? Did I change? Well, I think both. I mean, I think, I know from, from, from me, I feel like there's very little that I haven't seen before. But also I feel like the soul's gone out of it a little bit. And is that because the, the, the importance on the new is being removed or the, the, the rug has been pulled out from under the industry in terms of it only being a, a Junior Burgers game now? Where it's Yeah, I think because... Even now, for shooting for magazines, even, you know, as a photographer, you used to shoot an editorial for no money because you got creative control and you had creative input. Now, even the magazines are, are well, you have to shoot this piece of clothing because they, make, they advertise in the magazines. And all the magazines, obviously, are struggling to, no one buys magazines anymore. So it's this catch-22, so their sales have gone down, so they've become safer. Because, I mean, you know, like Italian Vogue was, you know, the standard of kind of creative fashion photography for so long. And the only people that ever bought it were fa fashion people. And, you know, I think that at the high circulation, it was not that much, you know. And, and they just survived on the, at people advertising with the magazine because it was the kudos of being in Italian Vogue. You know, the, I think the biggest Vogue that ever sold is, the, is American Vogue. And that's the most commercial out of all of them. And if you look at American Vogue, it's very clean and crisp and, you know, I mean, most of the editorials are sort of could be ads for, you know, for clothing companies. So it's sort of, uh, you know, it's always been that way. Like the, the kind of, the more commercial, the, the sort of more popular and the more arty. Like, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's sad, but there's not that much room for that. And I think what's happened now is um, because they're so worried about actually surviving and selling a few copies to be able to print the next copy, um, that risk, the being willing to risk something. I mean, I remember we used to buy magazines and there'd be three, like you used to buy a Dutch magazine, and there'd be three blank white pages just so that the, the image that came next had so much more impact. There's no room for that now. Like, it's, you know, you can't, no one's crazy enough to do that anymore. Well, what, I mean, I, I watched the really, did you see that beautiful documentary about Franca Sozzani? Um, no. They've, they've given her her own, thank God, documentary celebrating where she came from and the work that she's done. And this is the, the editor of Italian Vogue who passed away recently. Yes. And her, yeah. her son made the documentary. Oh, no. And the, um, the reason why they, the documentary presents Italian Vogue as being this sort of incubator for ideas that then influence yeah. the rest of the world yeah. was because no one did pay attention to it. Yeah. Therefore, as far as Condé Nast was concerned, 
it was a bit of a backwater that they Absolutely. almost were happy just to leave it to its own devices because it was surviving. You yeah. know, it was doing enough. Yeah. Let's just leave it. The five people it, in the fashion industry that bought it. Kept you know. it afloat. Yeah, exactly. And it became Stephen Mizell's personal experimentation. Yeah. He shot every single cover for yeah. 15 years. And he used to do 30 page editorials in it. Yeah. And so the collaboration then between Franker and Stephen Mizell, and you know, there was just, just, this, this documentary. I forget what it's called, but it's, it's on Netflix at the right. moment. It's um, a beautiful testament to the creative process and the fact that just like, I suppose, Mutual Prada coming from like a politics background, Frank yeah. Cezani was um, similarly something very philosophical. I think she yeah, was a yeah. philosophy student. Right. And then she had brought her philosophy into yeah. this space. Yeah. Which makes me think that what's this generation's version of the thing that ultimately is, is it is it like a backwater nook of Tumblr that is going to come up with the next interesting design Maybe. suggestions. You know, it certainly doesn't seem to be in a public space because no one can afford to keep anything but it's also, experimental. I think, I mean, look, don't get me wrong. Like, I, you know, I, I think that there's really young people doing really talented things, uh, you know, but that are really talented and that are doing amazing things. I think the problem is that there's... Um, how do I say this without sounding like a grumpy old man? Um, I think there's such a sort of need to have success and, and, and the trappings of success in society now that no one's really prepared to kind of risk suffering to be creative. So the, I think that there are really talented people out there that are, but they're having to put themselves into positions where they don't get the chance to, to do what they really want to do because they just want to have a nice apartment with a nice car. Like when I used to work in New York, I used to, when I worked for John, he said to me, I can afford to pay you $150 a week, minimum for three days, but if you want to work seven, I can still only pay you $150 a week. That's all I can afford to pay my assistant. And so I worked seven days a week for him because I just was, and, and he, the deal was he'd buy me lunch every day, so I ate. And I managed to survive on that. And I was grateful to be doing it. I mean, I like he used to call me at like two o'clock in the morning and ask me to go and pick something up for him. And I just, there wasn't an ounce of me that was like, get it your fucking self. I was just grateful to be involved and working at Interview Magazine. I'd be the last to leave. They won't pay me anything. And I'd be the first one in the morning. And I think that that's been lost a little bit. I think people are sort of like, there's, there's a little bit of a sort of, um, I mean, you know, I have assistants now and they're like, oh, well, we've worked for nine hours now, it's an eight hour day. And I'm like, for fuck's sake. Like I used to just be grateful to be, you know, and excited to be just on a set and just happy to be around people doing, taking pictures. And I think, and I don't think that's, I mean, I don't know, I don't, I don't know whether it's, generational or and there's no it's not work ethic anymore or it's just that people's um i mean this is a, it's a pretty big subject because you know i think capitalism has got a lot to answer for and i think this desire that we need to just have more and more and more is really destructive you know i mean i'm basically a minimalist um and i just think for me the thing that's brought me the most freedom to create has been the ability to not want things so I've been able to make decisions all through my career, not based on money. And I think if I, if money was more important to me, I'd be in a much better position, but I'd also would have had less creative opportunities because I was happy to do work for free and I was happy to do 
you know, to, to not take on a job. I mean, I remember very early on in my career being <coughs> offered like a $40,000 job to shoot for a big commercial brand and saying to my agent, oh, this, I don't want to do that. And she's like, but you need the money. And I think I literally had $100 in my bank account. And I was like, yeah, but that's not the kind of photographer I am. And, I, and it was probably the first five years of my career and it was really important to me that every single thing that I did at that point was me and what I wanted to be known for. And I think, you know, later on in your career, when you've got a body of work and you've established yourself, you can afford to do really commercial work for the money because people know that's not what you do. You've established a style and all that kind of stuff. And I think for me, that ability to be able to say no to needing things is, was really important and, and meant that I could be more creative. And I think that's what the problem is now. People want stuff so they're less, less willing to take a risk on not getting stuff. What's your, I love it, it makes absolute sense to me. And also it's, it's indicative of, I mean, you've come from living in Sydney, a very expensive city, some would say one of the most expensive cities I in the world. I agree with that. You're now living in London, also a very expensive city. And I'm broke. <laughs> and so Literally. It's, 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 it's one of those things where you almost, everyone has to sort of work out, you know, whether they, want to exist in the in the material world and yeah. the rat race and how much they're prepared to give of themselves yeah. to to do that well put it like this i wouldn't have done what i've just done which is give up a, you know give up a 25 year career shooting very regularly having a really nice life to go and start all over again on the other side of the world shooting trying to shoot a completely different kind of work um and literally gone from being very comfortable to having to borrow money off friends to pay my rent next month and I wouldn't have done that if I was scared of losing my lifestyle. Yes. So I feel like, you know, people, like I'm surrounded by people all the time, every day at the moment saying to me, God, you're so brave. Like I would never do that. I'd never. And it's not brave. It's, it's not suffocating creatively. Like for me, I was like, if I don't do it now, then maybe in five years time, I will be too scared. Like I'll be too comfortable and I'll be too used to the comforts, creature comforts. But right now I've moved into, I just recently moved into a little studio apartment, no furniture, spent the first two weeks sleeping on an old mattress that the previous guy had left there for me and eating off paper plates because I had no, no plates. And I'm okay with that because I've put myself there for a reason. And the reason is that I want to take pictures that give me some soul satisfaction. And if that means that I have to suffer for a while, and, you know, I have faith that eventually someone will pay me to take the kind of pictures that I want to take again. But if it, that doesn't happen, I'll do something else. But I'm really grateful to knowing that I can take those risks because I don't care about having a nice car. This is really interesting to me about the idea of creatively what you need, the space you need to hold for yourself in order to do the work that you're really proud of. Do you think that if you were saying yes to the sort of jobs that you have been saying yes to in the last 25 years, mm. would you not have the creative space, the mental space to be able to invest in the sort of work that you want? Are Absolutely. they mutually exclusive? No, not at all, not at all. And, I, and I've learned a lot, like this is the thing, I'm really grateful for the opportunities I've had. I mean, you know, I fell into fashion and I've traveled all over the world. I've seen places that I never thought I would ever get the chance to go. I've met some incredible people. Most people I find in the fashion industry, you know, people talk about, you know, fashion is full of wankers. I'm like, you know what? I listen to my friends talk about their office politics 
And the world is full of waste. <laughs> well, <laughs> I like to be a bit more positive. <laughs> but there's good and bad everywhere. And my experience with the fashion industry is that most people in the industry just want to do beautiful work and you know work really hard at it and have great work ethics and are really dedicated and want to be really creative and they're not horrible people in any way shape. in fact some of my best friends work in fashion and i love them dearly and they're obsessed and and i think it's adorable but for me it's um oh so it's not at all about regretting well not so much about regretting i was saying you know can you why, why don't you now do fashion work and the work, shoot the work that you want to do simultaneously. Is that possible? So where I'm at with it now is, um, I mean, the the difficulty is that I'm really not enjoying shooting fashion. Okay. And not because, I mean, I I just just spent the day shooting fashion on Tuesday, but it's- It's lingerie. Lingerie, yeah. I mean, the thing is, there's certain clients that I'll always work for because I love the people that own the brand and I believe, you know, there's a lot of fashion brands out there trying to do good work and that are donated to charities and not producing in sweatshops and are making sure that everything's ethically produced and, and you know, supporting various issues and causes and those are the brands that I will work with. Um, and I'm really, like I said, I don't have a problem with selling the product at all. Um, that's what I do. I'm a commercial photographer. So it was also it was, it was a conflict of, of interest at the at the core of what the the, the brands that you're working with was standing for in terms of their manufacturing processes and some, mm. but also just it, the conflict for me was I got into photography to take creative, beautiful pictures, and so I don't want to work for someone who's just like just get the shot. Blah blah blah. Yeah. So you know, over the years, of say someone like Tiger Lily, I shot Tiger Lily campaigns for fifteen years, and through no one's fault, it's just the nature of the industry. We went from shooting ten shots a day, we'd go we go away somewhere, we'd shoot for three days, thirty thirty shots for the catalogue, and we'd get a chance to finesse the shots, and you know the brand grew, and the catalogues became very well known, and sort of the imagery was synonymous with the brand, and we were always really specific about who the Tiger Lily girl was. The last shoot that I did for them, they wanted 30 shots in a day and the shots weren't as good as they used to be because you can't do 30 finesse, beautifully lit shots in a day. And so for me, it was just kind of, I'm being asked to compromise my work for a brand that everyone knows that I shoot and it's no one's fault, but they just need more shots and budgets aren't growing and they, don't, they have to shoot more often because they need content and the budgets, you know, they, everyone used to shoot twice a year and now they shoot once a month. But the photography budgets for the year is the same amount. Mm. So, you know, I understand all the logistics of it and why it's happened that way. But the fact is, I was taking shitter pictures <laughs> and I'm not prepared to go backwards. You know, and so I, after I turned around to Tiger, after 15 years, I said to them, you should get someone else to do this because I'm not the guy that's going to churn out 30 pictures in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, you know, for a variety of reasons, but m- mostly because of why I became a photographer. Yes. So when you decided to give yourself the absolute sea change of moving to London, was that because of there was a, a type of work that was available to you by moving there? Well, I'm trying to work out if it's available to me yeah. there. It was more about being sort of entrenched as a fashion photographer here, people knowing me as a fashion photographer, and also, really, it was about fucking myself up. 
like starting all over again, challenging myself, um, really turning up in a new town and kind of going, well, I don't have an agent, I don't have a book of pictures that I want to do. Um, and also, I, I guess, where I'm <coughs> where I'm sort of, the kind of work that I want to do now, where I'm more focused, it's just a bigger market. For, I feel, I hope there's a bigger market for it there. Um, and I just feel like sort of, there's more chance of me sort of starting again there and sort of growing in the direction that I want to grow in. Whereas here I've got to kind of battle against, because it's really, I mean, it is really tempting when people want to pay you a lot of money to shoot some clothes for their day. Whereas no one's offering me to do that there because they don't know me. So, you know, it's kind of like, if I, I could see myself if I, got, if I stayed here, I could just see myself getting, I actually was getting to the point where I was going to stop being a photographer because I just was getting worn down by, you know, spending days shooting stuff where it just wasn't fun for me anymore and I didn't feel like it was create. It was, it was really to sort of get away from, from just that kind of churning out kind of work. And, and if that meant that I didn't shoot for five years until I built up new clients, then I was prepared to do that. Because it was either do that or quit photography because I'm losing the passion for it. Are you, like, are you able to talk about what sort of work you would ideally like to be doing? Yeah, absolutely. That's, what is that? Yeah. So really what I want to do is just use um, my pictures to raise awareness of various issues. So I've been doing, I mean, so one of the big brands that I work with is, is Burley here and we shoot Serena Williams and I love working with them because they, and also because Serena, she's not a skinny model, you know, she's a real woman, she's an incredible icon for women, an incredible role model, um, you know, she's powerful and she's at the top of her game and she, you know, is doing lots of stuff to make sure that women get paid equally to, as men in sport and I just, so... I'm kind of, I think because of working in fashion and because of having a daughter, I basically sort of got to this point where I, I've never believed that there's this sort of, you know, homogenized version of female beauty. I've always shot all different kinds of women, different ages, different, and, and I just, and I really just got to the point where I was, I wanted to celebrate the, the stuff, the beauty that I see in women that's not that. So um, the kind of work that I want to do is just stuff where it's, it makes me, my soul feel good rather than going, oh, I'm not really comfortable with shooting a 14-year-old in a dress that only a 50-year-old woman can afford to buy because it's $20,000. It's just, it's, this bit's unrealistic, that bit's unrealistic. And, you know, I don't want to shoot a skincare campaign on a 12-year-old girl that's anti-aging. Like, of course she's not aged, she's 12. <laughs> And I, I, it just, I, I just think, you know, I've, I've shot, you know, Christy Turnington, like Jen Hawk, like all these beautiful women. And with that fail, they feel this enormous pressure that I think men, I think men are maybe just starting to feel with, you know, the gym culture and stuff, but women have had this for hundreds of years. And I'm a feminist, you know, I think women are amazing and I'm just, want to make them feel good about themselves instead of perpetuating this homogenized version of what they're supposed to be and that goes in, in all ways so working with Burley's a great brand because they are all about female empowerment and you know I'm just about to shoot a really great campaign with Serena for them again um, also um, 
so in May I had an exhibition in London with Nick Knight and Rankin, a group exhibition to um, raise money for men's anti-suicide charity. Um, I've raised money for Sydney Children's Hospital every year. I go and shoot portraits at their gold dinner. Um, and I think this year we raised you know, $25,000 or something. But just lots of little projects um, that where I kind of um, feel like I'm doing some good is basically what I want to do. If I can use my pictures for good instead of for evil, then I'll be happy. <laughs> I love to end by asking people, if I were to check in with you in a year's time, yeah. is there a project or a place that you'd like to be completed in that time? I would like to be traveling all over the world, raising awareness and money for causes that I believe in. That's, that's what I would like to do. And there's ways that I'm going to make that happen. I know I'm going to still have to shoot some commercial jobs to fund that stuff. But there's also, you know, there's, there's like I shot a series of portraits. Do you remember the Gaby Baby yeah. documentary? Yes. Like, like I shot a, this is one of the starting points of this whole thing. I shot a series of portraits of the kids from that between the film being supposedly shown in schools and then being banned. And in that week I shot these portraits of them and it was meant to just be a fun day in the studio for these kids. Of course, after the film has stopped from being played and became very controversial, those pictures have now been, they were run in ID, they were exhibited across China, they were exhibited in Taiwan during Mardi Gras, they had them outside Town Hall. And, and just they just took on a life of their own. And I, you know, I basically said to the director, you have these pictures, use them for whatever you, whatever, however you can use them to promote the film, because I really believe in, in what the film's about. Um, <clears throat> and just, seeing the life that those pictures took on of, of their own and, and knowing that they're still kind of getting the message of the film across. Um, it's, that's, that's what I, you know, I know that there's power in that and I know that there's, there's, there's opportunities for me to do more of that kind of stuff where, you know, it, it may just be a portrait of someone who's doing great work, but if that can be then used around the world to promote that person's work or whatever, then that's the stuff I want to do. I think the way things work, I, I, I'm interested by the idea that you've intuited this way of working, which is a reflection of the way you did things once upon a time. I'm not going to shoot that sort of work, even though I need the money, because I really believe that I need to go in this direction. Yeah. And then you forged a career that was really unique, that meant that you were doing things that no one else could do. Yeah. And now you've intuited this new pressing of the reset button that's like... And also, everything around you is telling you no. Your pure comfort levels are telling you yeah, no. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the so society as a whole is telling you, are you crazy? Why are you not getting money for things that are yeah. perfectly fun yeah. ways of earning money? Oh, yeah. And so, but there's the belief that you know that there's something better on the other side, regardless of what anyone else around you could say, means that you have no choice but to just trust that process and, and go yeah. there. But it's because I really don't care what anybody else thinks. I mean, that's, I f that was how I managed to get a career in fashion. Because when I first came here, people said, oh, they looked for my portfolio and be like, oh, the pictures are really dark and, and ugly. You'll never work in Australia. It's all, it's all about fresh face girls running on the beach in Australia. I mean, I was laughed out of meetings and I didn't give a fuck then because those are the pictures I wanted to take. And it's the, it's the same principle now. Like, I know it's funny because I know that, like, moving back to London, I lived in London 12 years ago and I was shooting fashion. 
And it's really weird because people are like, oh, so you're back, are you shooting for and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, no, I, do, I just want to do this kind of work now. And I almost feel people kind of, oh, that's not so cool. That's, oh, that's not sexy. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how I can use that. Yeah, like I, I kind of, oh, you used to be like the cool fashion photographer. I don't know whether I want to hang out with you anymore. You want to do like that that was, political stuff. That won't get me laid. Yeah, I know, yeah, I yeah do you know what I mean? I and, I'm kind of, and I watch it happening. I'm kind of like, it's it's... I don't have a choice. But this is the new, but the funny thing is, this is the new punk. This is the new cool. <laughs> this is what the cool kids are tapping into now, ahead of what's. I love this idea that when you are paying attention and following your own impulses, you just gravitate towards things first. And because you're pushing against the resistance of what everyone else is doing, it feels really counter. But inevitably, everyone comes around because you're just responding to the same influences that exist in the world that everyone else will eventually respond to but also i think and i've always believed this if you people respond to passion so you know over the years i've had people that i photographed um i mean kate sobrano is an example of this the first time i photographed her she said to me you know i think you're the first photographer that's ever tried to photograph my energy rather than shoot around my size and she, she actually ended up writing a song about me, which was amazing and like another pinch moment. But it was, there was, I, she, I made her feel beautiful. And she said to me, you know, you made me feel sexy. And over the years, there's been those moments with people and with women where I've kind of, and they've sort of made a big, made a big deal out of it or, or sort of tried to explain to me the difference of being photographed by me to, to compared to other people. And what's happened really is that I've kind of now latched onto that and gone, well, actually, that's what I love about taking pictures. Like, beauty's not important, but it is something. And it, if you can just shift very slightly how someone feels about themselves, that's a little gift to give to them. And that can be about how they look or the importance of what they're doing or the, the cause that they represent or but it, but if you can like I you know like I was saying to you earlier I see beauty in everything and I need to start showing people that to them if that makes sense it's not enough for me to see it. I, I want to share it with them and, and sort of let them see what I see and so I think that and because it's yeah, like, so the trilogy, one of the trilogy campaigns I shot, we shot 15-year-old women from the age of 15 to 60, and two of the women were in tears by the time I'd finished shooting them, and they just said, you've made me feel so beautiful. Like, I felt differently about myself. I feel, you've made me feel really beautiful. And, you know, that's the stuff where I get, like, a massive... That's what, well, like, that's when I go home going, I did a good day's work. And because it's not fake because I do think they're beautiful I'm not doing this because it's trendy I'm not doing this because you know plus size women are cool or any of that bullshit I'm doing it because they're all they, they've always been beautiful to me everyone is you know I see beauty everywhere and in everyone and I think because that's the truth of of, of how I see the world then people will respond to it so I think if you're passionate about it and it's truthful and it's not just a fad, then people see the authenticity sort of authenticity of so I can pay the rent <laughs> one day again. Twenty nineteen, fingers crossed. Yeah, do you know what I mean? So you, you are, you go. You're, look, you're fighting the good fight. Thank <laughs> you, too. That was beautiful. Is that all right?